Welcome to the Classroom Podcast, the book club discussion on the classic political philosophy. My name is Eric Nganyange. I'm your host and the student in this class, sitting here with the one and only Professor Ron Klein. <laughs> Professor Ron? Yes, how, I'm here. How are you? <laughs> how are you, my friend? I'm good, Eric. How are you? I'm fabulous. Yes, you are. Thomas Hobbes. <laughs> I want to start it off with the title of the book, Leviathan. What is the meaning of Leviathan in the context of this book? The word is a biblical word. It shows up eight times in the Old Testament in places like the book of Job. So Leviathan is, is a sea monster. You can oh. think of it as a dragon or a snaky kind of monster. So it's not a well. Well, in the story of Jonah... The word is Leviathan, and it is translated whale. There's reason to think that's not accurate as a translation, because how do the Hebrews of that era know about whales? There are not a lot of whales in the east, far eastern Mediterranean. I think that was maybe an interpolation, that means an addition, when you know rabbinical scribes or even Christian scribes have felt it more appropriate to use the term whale because it sort of fits our understanding of a beast big enough to swallow a man, I guess. So what is the connection that Hobbes was trying to make with this? Well, that's the interesting part. He will call, essentially, the government, which is in his way of thinking, all-powerful, as we'll see when we go through, and he will even call the government this mortal god. How about that? Wow. The government is a mortal god, and you are like Job. You got no business asking questions. That's dangerous. Well, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so how much do we know about this guy? So Thomas Hobbes is born in 1588, the same year that the Spanish Armada was sent to capture England. Now, that was a terrifying event, all right. Hobbes's mother was pregnant during that period. And apparently she went into labor early because of her fear. So Hobbes says in a brief autobiographical statement, I was born twin fear, meaning that he was born early because his mother was terrified, as most English people were, about the Spanish Armada on its way. So that's an interesting way to put it. I was born twin to fear. Hobbes grows up with that as, you know, You can imagine as a little kid, he heard these stories. He, a brilliant young man, but his father was real trouble. He was a pugnacious, irritable priest. Finally, he ran away so they wouldn't put him in jail. Fortunately, Hobbes had a wealthy uncle that lived in town and sent him off to Oxford College. But he got a job offer from a a noble family, Cavendish family. So he's hired as the tutor to the children. Typical thing to the, for to these good fa- scholars. To, yep. to this family. So he essentially becomes part of the Cavendish family. Eventually, Cavendish kids that he's tutoring start getting into their late teen years, and then there was something called rounded off your education that was called the Grand Tour. So while he was doing this, he met Rene Descartes, who is generally considered to be the founder of modern philosophy. Really important figure. And he even met Galileo. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So, but he became interested in geometry. And so he writes three books. The first one is about the physical world. 
de corpore. The second one is about citizenship and political society, de Kive, which we haven't read. And then Leviathan's the third one in the series. And his claim was, I've shown those pikers, Aristotle and Plato and those people, how this needs to be done. So you can just forget about Aristotle. Take him out of the university, put my books in, and everybody will understand. Well, it hasn't worked out that way, fortunately. But that was his goal. In the meanwhile, he's watching all of the religious conflict, three-party conflict in England, and the horrible 30 years war going on starting in 1618. So that's another thing that probably reinforces his view. Violent death is a real possibility, and we're all afraid of it. Mm. Now, the book was published in 1651. Yes. That's 370 years old. The key concept in this book is peace and security. This English Civil War started 1642? Well, it depends on what you mean by started. When did the fighting start? I think that was probably around then. Okay. So how long did this go until, because what I'm trying to figure out, how much did this influence Hobbes' idea of peace and security by watching all this unfold? I think it did. He probably published it in 1651, and first in France in a Latin edition, because he was in France at the time, and then he, he came back to England under the Lord Protectorship of Oliver Cromwell. The head. So he was witness from France to all of that violence. So that's part of it. But I'm not sure that was the over, overwhelming factor. I mean, there's okay. wars going on all the time. So he was well acquainted with violence, political and otherwise. Mm. Four concepts in this book I would like for you to break down for me. State of nature, covenant, social contract, and political obligations. Big. Big, all of them. Talk about Hobbes' state of nature. Well, although not in Leviathan, it's in a different book, De Kive, which is about the citizen. So what, here's what he says. The state of nature appears when people pop up sort of like mushroom, independent of each other and without any relationships between them. That's how the people get there and are independent of each other. Now, that's sort of an odd image. We know full well that people do not pop up like mushrooms. Oh, yeah. You've noticed that, right? (laughs) Because your little mushroom's what, 16, 16? 17 now? Yeah. And we do know where people come from. So pretty clearly, he's creating an, an analytic framework to discuss political issues that isn't true at its foundation. Anyway, we have all these individuals unassociated with each other, And there's no restraints on them because there's no government, there's no familial organization, there's no tribe, there's none of that is there. So they can do whatever they want. And at first blush, you say, well, that's great. I'm totally free. Only in the sense that if you can stay alive very long, you can be free. Because he says the natural inclination of everybody is self-preservation. So if you're unrestrained and can do anything, you will do anything and everything to extend your life. Now, everybody else, all the other little mushrooms are thinking the same thing. So that gets to be what he calls a war of all against all. I can do anything. This is a horrible situation. 
there's a famous line, and I won't probably quote it correctly, but and the kind of life that you would lead in that is bloody, nasty, brutish, and short. So in that situation, I think that's a good description. So your number one concern in life is just to keep living. You have no time or reason to do anything especially productive. Build a nice house, somebody's just going to take it. Farm crops, somebody's going to steal them. Build a boat, somebody will take it. And in any of those situations, they could just out and out kill you. What does Hobbes mean about the covenant? Well, a covenant, and he's fairly careful to define his terms, which is helpful, Covenant is essentially a contract, but one at least one of the sides doesn't have to perform it right away. And the importance is it creates obligations on both sides. So does the state of nature <clears throat> constantly keep people at the state of war? Constantly. At the state of war, fearful all the time of violent death. You'd never escape it. And that pushed human beings to get to the covenant. Two covenants going on there. Obviously, if you want to preserve your life, the best thing you can do is get out of the state of nature because you're at a war of all against all. So if you can get a secure peace, great. Then you won't have to live in fear and you can grow your vegetables and build your house and so on. So what you have to do first is make an agreement with other people to bring the state of nature to a close by agreeing with them that we'll all give up our right to do anything we want. But you have a problem. You've been in a state of nature. You can do anything you want. How can you trust anybody else's word? As Hobbes says, there are no agreements without swords, which is to say, unless there's somebody around to enforce the agreement, it can't happen or it won't work because nefarious uh, principles will come into play. So that's a real problem. But nonetheless, Hobbes thinks that can happen. And then he says, covenant two, once you've got everybody agreed that they will give up all of their rights, say all of their freedoms to do anything they want to each other. And then they have to, as a group, collect, consider the question of how can we maintain this peace that we have? So what Hobbes is suggesting in the Leviathan is what we do, we must do is have a force so powerful that it can overawe all of us and keep us peaceful towards one another. First, that, that it could be a government of a lot of different forms, but he will come down on monarchy as the best form. We'll give the monarchy all of this power. They can do anything they want, anytime they want, and we're not entitled to question them. And his argument is, well, you have a contract with this mortal god you've created, this monarch. So your agreement is that he has all of your rights. So he can do anything and you can't object. So what do you think of that argument? The argument of giving the monarchy all the rights and I cannot object? Yep. I think it's horrible. So you're not willing to buy peace at any price? No, not by losing every freedom I have. Except the freedom to live, of course. Yeah. <laughs> but, which is important. But the logic of the argument doesn't seem to work either. Part of the term consent involves informed consent. That means you need to know precisely what you are consenting to. So the question is, how could you make an agreement with a monarch that is so vague as you can give any orders, make any laws, do anything you want, 
and that'll be just fine with me. You're not giving consent to anything, or you're giving consent to everything, which is not specific. If you haven't consented any specific government action, do you have any obligation to obey anything? No. Yeah, that's the problem, right? Yeah. So they're going to come back with, we'll take that one step further. There's such a thing as implied consent, right? You didn't say specifically, I consent to all of these things and sign off on it. But by your actions, you implied that you agreed with it. This has been around in English common law forever, most of which is in effect in our country, by the way. Implied consent. Yep. So here's the classical case. You own a cottage, let's say, in the village of Chipping Camden. It's a beautiful little town, by the way. So you own one there, and it's got a thatched roof. Someone knocks on your door early in the morning, and you open the door, and there's a couple, three guys there say, well, we've come to rethatch your roof. Now, you know you didn't ask them. But you say, okay, and close the door. They go ahead and thatch your roof, rethatch it, and come down to collect. And you say, I don't owe you anything. I never asked you to do that. We didn't have an agreement. We didn't have an agreement. Uh, the common lawyers rightfully said, just because you didn't specifically assent, you knew what was going on, could have stopped it, you didn't, and therefore you're on the hook for it. That's implied consent. Notice about that, that that also involves Consent to something very specific, going to thatch your roof, right? So can you give an implied consent to our Constitution or any kind? Well, people will argue, well, but, you know, you drive on the roads and you walk on the sidewalks and you, you let the garbage people pick it up and you don't stop them. Therefore, you've given implied consent. What's the problem? Too vague. Yeah. It's way too vague. What was his view on divine right of king? <laughs> well... That's a really interesting question. It's very clear from his other writings that he's a materialist. Mm. A materialist is a person who believes there's only, put it in modern terms, atoms and space for them to move around in. So you're one or the other. That doesn't leave any place for divine. But you can't say that. That leads to no possibility of the divine. But he still believes and has written that he's a materialist. So to save his life as much as anything else, he has got to support religion and the divine. And he does that by quoting them. But it's because Hobbes cannot publicly say, I am an atheist. They will burn him at the stake. In 1600, that was not something you could say loud. You couldn't say that out loud. You didn't even want to whisper that. Mm. And that's not to say a lot of people didn't believe it, but nobody's talking. Mm. What was Hobbes' idea of our political obligation? Uh, it's total. Mm. You have no voice. You have no right to criticize. You have no rights at all because you voluntarily give gave up them your rights. Up, yeah. Right? Now, people have argued. Let's see. They gave up those rights because they were fearful of violent death. Isn't that duress? So we were afraid of dying, so we didn't have any choice. We had to give it up. So that's duress. And he says, no, there's no such thing as duress. You could have opted to stay in the state of nature. Mm -hmm. But you did not want to because you did not want to be in a constant war. And have your life on the line every day. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned duress, Professor. Because on chapter 21, Hobbes say fear and liberty are consistent. That's right. Talk to me about that. He threw me off on this one. If somebody put a gun on my head, they wanted my wallet or my life, do I really have a choice there? But you do. 
I mean, the other option is death by keeping my wallet. Well, but it's it's still an option. <laughs> it's not an option anybody's going to take. Oh, so, but it is an option. And but it's not the option I'm choosing freely. I'm under duress. Well, duress is a definition of not being able to make a choice. But you are. You can make a choice there. Yeah. There would be a good choice and a stupid choice, but you could choose either one because we do have free will, right? That's very interesting. I never looked at it that way. Yeah, and Hobbes is the only philosopher I know that has looked at it that way. But he's not wrong in a sense that you do have a choice. Why was he so against separation of power in government? Good question. Um, because we're very used to having separation of power and separation of belief all over the place. But Hobbes is fearful turning to a government and having many voices in the government speaking to an issue and confusing everybody. So his argument is, if there's a monarch, by definition, that's one person. One person will give one answer. It'll be the same answer. You don't have to then worry about what the, what the attorney general says or what the secretary of state says, because you might get different answers from all of them. Then you don't know where you stand. And he says, you know, that produces confusion and confusion produces an inclination to not follow the orders of the monarch. Can't have that. And, and we think just the opposite. He talked about forms of government, but he skipped the republic form of government. Was that on purpose? Well, but they didn't recognize because there, there hadn't been one since ancient Rome. Okay. They just didn't have republics. A republic really is, there's two terms that are involved, a republic and a confederation. We are both. So a republic essentially is you elect representatives and they will speak for whoever it is they represent. Real republic before us is ancient Rome between about 510 BC and about 131 BC. That's the best example of a previous republic. A confederation is a group of states, and I'm using state in its bigger sense of country, group of countries or counties or whatever who band together and pick in whatever way they pick a central governing body to speak for all of them. So for us, it literally is all of the states, mm -hmm. right? We elect a federal government to do things like defend the whole group. Classic confederation is a defensive military alliance. NATO is that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Maybe the United Nations. So those are confederations. There hasn't been much before us. Okay. So and that makes, makes what our founders did that much more interesting. Very, very yeah. interesting. Hobbes said the laws of nature are immutable and eternal. Talk to me. Okay. Law of nature is a description. So if, we, if I hold my pop bottle up and let go, we know that it's going to end up on the table surface. And we can describe how that works. But we can say that that law of gravity on the Earth's surface is always going to be true, right? Because it has to do with the mass of the objects and so on. So those are immutable. Mm. But what about natural law? I was about to ask you, are they the same, the same thing? Okay, the okay. Same. 
Okay. Right? For some reason, I was thinking they're the same. Thanks yeah. for setting me straight. That's all right. I try to do that on a regular basis. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so when we talk about natural law, and that's very hard to define. Uh, let's take Locke's definition. He's more explicit. He says, the state of nature is governed by the law of nature, which is reason. All human beings have the faculty of reason, and so they have the wherewithal from God to figure out what the laws of nature are, and since any true statement is going to agree with any other true statement, everybody should come up with the same thing. So it should be universal in that sense. Now, he doesn't take into account that some people like Locke himself and Hobbes and Galileo are a lot smarter than us normal guys. And we may have the faculty of reason, but not the ability to use it like other smarter people. Okay? Mm. Same thing with physical skill. We all you know, are pretty much look the same physically. We don't have the same strength. Strength, speed, you name it. Yeah. Jumping ability. Mm. And we know that. Yeah. Or, or what do you think? I'm stupid? No, I've got plenty of reason. <laughs> yeah. So the law of nature and natural law are not the same thing. Yeah. Hmm. But those three get confused all the time, and it's hard to get away from. And yeah. he also pointed out the idea of preservation of life. That's back to the first obligation you have. You have the right in the state of nature to do anything, no restraints, to preserve your life, mm. right? What about uh, suicide? Oh, good question. He would say, no, 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 sorry. You're supposed to always preserve your life, and suicide is the opposite of that. Yeah. You're not entitled to do that. That's, an, let's call that an unnatural constraint. I want to go back a little bit when you started talking about English Civil War and back in 1642, whatever. You said there was also religious conflict. Oh, yeah. Well, let's go back to the middle 1500s. Henry VIII, as the king, uh, had been married to a Spanish princess, Catherine of Aragon. She had given him a daughter, but no male heirs. And so he got frustrated and decided he needed to marry somebody else. And the, the way you did that in the Middle Ages was appeal to the Pope. And usually it was pro forma. King asked for divorce, absolutely. Unfortunately for Henry VIII, the Pope was Spanish, and he was not going to allow him to to divorce his Spanish wife. That would be an insult to Spain, so he didn't. So what's Henry going to do? Well, he decides that he will just take over the church, the Catholic Church in England as the head of the church. Right, So that's an interesting issue. Is it Catholic or Protestant at that point? Okay. Because Martin Luther has already started splitting the Protestants off. Well, it becomes sort of a hybrid. And I guess we could say Henry pushed it towards the Protestant side some because he was also broke and wanted to fight a war. So he, he recognized that the, the Catholic Church in England had lots of money. Lots and lots of money. So he sold off all of their properties and took all of their portable wealth. That changed them as well. So you have, in England, there's still Catholics, 
And now there are people that are following Henry VIII, this head of the church. We'll call them Anglicans because that's what they called themselves. So that goes on for a while. In the meantime, in Europe, uh, Frenchman John Calvin becomes very prominent and his colleagues. They go much further than Martin Luther in fixing the church. They want the church to be pure. We call them Puritans. Think of Thanksgiving. Those The Puritans are these Calvinistic English people. Ultimately, the second of Henry's daughters becomes Queen Elizabeth, the first brilliant political figure. So she's got on her hands a religious controversy that's very significant. You've got the Catholics that are still there, and most of the nobility are Catholics at that time, important people, and followers of the newly proclaimed Anglican Church. And there's getting to be more and more of what they call dissenters at the first, because they dissent from both of them. Uh, And again, we have come to call them Puritans, because they want to purify the church. And in particular, they... The church structure in the Anglican Church is very similar to the Catholic structure. They have bishops and so on. The only difference is Henry VIII is the head of the church instead of the pope, and then every monarch afterwards, okay? So the Catholics are really angry about what happened. And there are a lot of Catholic countries like Spain and France, and they want to convert England back to a Catholic country. So how could you do that? Well, kill the monarch, put somebody else in. So especially the king of Spain was eager to do that. So, and that brings up Thomas Hobbes again, of all people. Why is the Leviathan a classic book and what relevance to what we got going on today? Well, to start with the last part of that, I think we've talked a lot about what the relevance of what's going on today is whether you should be a a mindless sheep and just follow the government's orders or whether you want to have liberty. Okay, that's always a live issue so far in our society. Let's hope it it never gets so it's not. But the idea of a social contract is very much alive today and will be brought up in many political situations. Yeah. Hobbes is the first person to write about political philosophy in English. Oh, really? Yes. I did not know that. Yes. and So everything else has been the translation from yeah. other writers? Oh. Before. And he, as I mentioned, he wrote a couple of his works in Latin because he was in France and he wanted to get it to the scholars across Europe and a lot of different vernacular languages, but they all they all understood Latin, so he wrote them in Latin. Then he got, when he got back to England, he rewrote them in English and changed them sometimes. But he was the first. Wow. So that's important. He's the first one to directly argue for a social contract. Okay. There's a Dutch author that described what amounts to a state of nature but didn't use the term. His Hugo Grotius, a Dutch thinker, very good. But Leviathan, you know, sort of formalized that idea and gave it a name. And it's a useful analytic tool for analyzing some situations. But there's no question it's been useful. Our founding fathers borrowed lots of that. Okay. Yeah. Would you still recommend for people to read this book today? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Anything else you want to add? Oh, 
tons, but we're out of time, Eric. <laughs> well, that's all we have for today, man. Thank you for listening to Classroom Podcast. Until next time, be safe.